You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hey, everybody, this is the Gravity Leadership Podcast. You found us again right where we always are. On your on your podcast player. On the player. You know, I was talking to somebody, Ben. I'd do this, mm-hmm. and I uh, they said that no one under the age of 30 mm-hmm. listens to podcasts through, like, iTunes or Podbeam. They Podbeam. listen to them through Spotify, but mm-hmm. more than that, they wa- they are, they're on YouTube all the time. Hmm. So, so the young people, they're into they're into Spotify and YouTube. Yeah, the kids. Great. So anyway, I just That's wanted you to know this. Huge conglomerates that are trying to take everything over. Great. Right. So the Xers and Boomers will hold down podcasting while everybody else is on YouTube. I tell you what, I, I sometimes, this is a little bit, uh, this is going to be completely unfair to other generations, <laughs> but I feel like. I feel like Gen X was like the only punk rock generation. The only true punk rock DIY generation I've, was Gen you X. You said that, Tabor. I, yeah, you said that to me right. before. That's yep. completely unfair. I'm sorry to all of you. But, you know, if you're a Gen Xer, we can secretly take pride mm-hmm. in our uh, DIY punk rock. You know, cred. yeah, you know what's also unfair? What's that? Delaying. This Kirsch Cochran podcast we have coming. Oh, it's unfair. Speaking amazing. So we should just First, get out of the way. <laughs> we should. We should. So maybe maybe set it up for us. Like this is obviously we don't normally put out podcasts yep. at this time during the nope. week, but um Kirsch is a Kirsch, friend. He's been on the podcast yeah. before. Um and I kept thinking about him, and you said this as well, that um as we've seen like videos of uh, police being violent. There's all these protests about police brutality and police violence. 
going on, um, I kept thinking about, I wonder what my friend Kirsch thinks about this because Kirsch is a police officer um, and uh, got into the force though for very different reasons than most people do. Yes. Um, and so has a pretty unique perspective on all of this stuff, I think, as a police officer. Yes. So. And uh, I, I think whether you are angry at the police and uh, want to see the police go away mm-hmm. or you're uh, a Blue Lives Matter person, I'm not sure how many of those listeners we have, but if you're one of those people, I think both will be challenged yep. by what Kirsch has to say. You know, yep. you're. I think one of my rules of life is mm-hmm. if you're making people on both sides of the partisan divide uncomfortable, yeah. you may have something we all need to say. Need yes. to, right? Yes. Um, like, yes. So anyway, Kirsch, I, I don't even want to delay this any longer. <laughs> Let's just... It was, I, it was a longer interview than we normally do just because it was, we just kept talking and it was good. It was, it was, it was fantastic. So, yes. So, yes. Uh, listen to Kirsch. He, if he's an equal opportunity offender. Uh, and uh, much like, much like a lot of the people that we, uh, that we interview, <laughs> I think. So, he also inspired the junk out of me. Mm-hmm. We recorded this earlier today and I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. And uh, I'm super excited for you to hear it. So, without any, any further delay, Kirsch Cochran. Kirsch Cochran, welcome back to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Hey, it's good to be back. Dude, it's so good to see you. Uh, I've been thinking about you almost every day for the last two weeks, two plus weeks, three weeks. Um, and uh, we've had you on the podcast before, but for those who have slept or read a book since then, uh, could you... It's inter- yeah, it's been a while. It's been a hot minute. Could you introduce yourself again to our listeners, um, maybe what you do and why you do what you do, and then we can jump into what I think will be a really important conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, my name is Kirsch Cochran. I'm a 29-year-old chief of police uh, in Huntington, Indiana, at the Huntington University Police Department. So my journey is is kind of crazy, as as many stories that involve God are. Um, I grew up in a law enforcement family in a really white town. My grandfather was a police officer. Um, my dad is the is a chief of police, and so we are father son police chiefs right now, which is pretty awesome. Um, but for me, the journey to be a police officer was not one that I expected to take. Um, mm. I went to Huntington University for my undergrad. I uh, graduated in 2013 with a degree in broadcast journalism. And I went directly into sports broadcasting, working for the Fort Wayne Tin Caps, which was the mm. coolest job in the world, working <laughs> in professional baseball. And then um, was offered a job at NBC, uh, worked for NBC. And then at 25 years old in 2015, um, Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, Missouri. And uh, one night I was watching that Ferguson unrest. And the way I describe it is I just had this veil of white privilege um, ripped from my eyes. Um, I had grown up in an all-white town, gone to an all-white high school. Huntington University at the time was uh, very white. And so I did not understand that not everyone thinks police officers are the good guys. Um, from my experience in America, police officers are the heroes. They're the guys you trust. And then once I at 25, I know it sounds ridiculous, but at 25, 
realizing that there's an entire population of people that because the color of their skin and their unique history in America, they are not afforded the security of um, feeling mm -hmm. safe around police officers. And so I did the only logical thing. I said, well, we got to <laughs> fix this. And so I applied uh, out of 1400 applications. Uh, I was one of 28 mm -hmm. selected uh, for police Academy. Um, mm -hmm. if, if you can't see me, I'm a real skinny white guy with no prior <laughs> military experience and um, a broadcasting degree. So why they, why they picked me, I have no idea to this day, but um, you know, God still does miracles whenever we're obedient. And so, um, you know, I had applied, I was one of 21 of the 28 that graduated the mm -hmm. worst 20 weeks of my life in police Academy. And so for the last five years, I just had my five year anniversary for the last five years. Um, I've been traveling and speaking about racial reconciliation. Um, I've traveled to civil rights spots. I've had the opportunity to sit in Dr. King's office um, and pray. Um, mm. I've mm. stood at his pulpit at the Dexter Street Baptist Church. And um, I am, I've just really committed myself to understanding how we got here uh, mm. in terms of the relationship between uh, the black community and law enforcement and then figuring out how I can stand in the gap and fix it. Yeah. Well, that's what we want to chat with you a little bit about today. I don't think the national conversation about the police has ever been this divided and fractured. Um, you know, I grew up also as a white kid in the suburbs and I'm listening to uh, NWA, you know, singing F the police. I'm listening to, um, uh, you know, uh, public enemy talking, talking about the police. And it was like, I just, I couldn't relate to it. I didn't have any, there was no empathy in it. It was more just entertainment. Yeah, it was fun to say fight the power though. Right. And think of right. your parents. Well, yeah. You know, when you're, when you're a white kid in the <laughs> yeah, suburb, think of your parents, yeah. <laughs> you're fighting the power. Uh, but, um, but I, I, I wonder, maybe we could start here. Um, what are the things that you learned about policing and being a police officer from the inside that you didn't know when you were a broadcaster. Yeah, that's a great, uh, you always hear the stories. So it's a great question because I wasn't sure what I was going to find um, mm. when I lifted my boot off the ground. You know what I mean? When you step on the bug mm. and you look at it, like, how bad is this going to be? You know? And so mm. as I worked in policing, uh, I, I saw a lot of really, really, really good cops. And I will say, uh, at least for me and my experience, the vast majority of police officers were good police officers. But there was a measurable amount that I interacted with. And I think it's impossible to be a police officer in America and not interact with bad police officers. Mm. Um, I've seen a story that I, I will tell as I was training. Um, and so I was riding with an officer. I was fresh out of the academy and there was a foot pursuit. And it was at, you know, kind of dark. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I've, I shared the story the last time that we were on, but um, what had happened was we were in a car and the goal was we were going to basically cut this kid off as he was running kind of between houses. And we knew that there were a couple officers that were on foot chasing the kid. Well, he got to a privacy fence and jumped over it. And the police officers caught him as soon as he jumped over the privacy fence and we pulled up right when that happened, probably two or three in the morning, super dark out. I'm, I walk up to where they're, they've apprehended uh, this young man. And 
I get my flashlight out to kind of shine and see what's going on. Um, because if, for those of you who don't know, there aren't, there aren't street lights in impoverished parts of town and, uh, the mm-hmm. sidewalks are broken and most people don't know that, but yes. it's something that we need to talk about. Yes. Nonetheless, um, I shine my flashlight and my training officer physically knocked my flashlight out of my hand, like straight up hit my flashlight out of my hand. My flashlight bounces off the road. I was a little upset because it was a new flashlight. I was a new police officer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I kind of looked at him like, what the heck, man? Um, And he said, turn that stuff off. We don't need to see what's going on over there. And when I had gotten closer, I mean, they were just pummeling this kid. And what he was basically saying was, if that kid complains later, we won't be able to say, I didn't see anything if we saw something. So yeah. it's best to just keep our distance um, mm. and look the other way than mm. to see what was mm. going on over there. Mm. And there were a few of those times um, that that had happened where not only are there bad cops, guys who have that malice in their hearts, but the culture yes. is to not say anything. And yes. so I saw that when I saw that meme on Facebook that it was, you know, uh, Derek, the officer with his knee on the neck is not indicative of every officer in America. That's true. Mm-hmm. But the three officers that stood around and watched historically have been indicative of every officer in America. Yes. And unfortunately, I can concur with that. And it's really, mm-hmm. really hard, especially when it's a big department and you're dealing with police unions. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to speak up and I've done it and I've been blacklisted for it mm. in many guys, uh, yeah. opinions. Yeah. Yeah. I think this gets to the heart of, um, I think this gets to the heart of the issue that, uh, is coming up uh, for folks. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, Hey, there's, a, there's only a few, it's just a bad apples, you know? Mm. Um, but then, you know, <laughs> That phrase, actually, the, the where that phrase comes from is the, uh, um, you know, the thought that one bad apple ruins the whole bunch, actually. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. you can't have a bad apple. That's the phrase. Um, you know what I mean? And so that's where it comes from. And so I, I think I think this is important for people to to hear is that this this isn't a this isn't a problem of a few bad apples, right? This isn't a problem of like, oh, we had no idea that Derek, you know, Chauvin was was going to do this even though they maybe did have some idea, it's the culture. It's a culture issue and it's a culture problem, which is like collectively people tend to behave in ways that sort of are scripted by this. And it's not even official sometimes. It's just, you know, it's your, it's your fellow officer knocking the flashlight out of your hand. Just like, this is how things are done. Like, don't question it, you know, fall in line. It's It's a code, right? I was going to say, it's like, it's like a code. It's like the unwritten rules in golf that you just know it, right? You don't walk in someone's putt line. Uh, you right. know, you don't put your shadow over someone's putt line. Like you have to, you don't, you would never know that unless you do it. Um, you would and never you get know. punished for it or yeah. yeah Absolutely. Uh, so, and it's, and it's taught from the Academy. So the, and tell me if you want me to stop telling stories, but Dude, this is the best story that I know uh, to convey this because we've mm. all heard there's a systemic problem. We've all heard that it's a cultural issue with law enforcement. But for me, when I tell stories, 
and I'm just one cop, you know, I, I'm just mm-hmm. one. Uh, it, it starts in the academy. So a, a, a story mm-hmm. that I'll never, ever forget. Um, we were in the police academy and there's this like, it's called a simulation house and it's all inside. And the goal is towards the last few weeks of your academy, you do the scenarios, whether it be a domestic or some, some call that you would normally go on. And then the staff will kind of critique your performance um, as you go in. And so it was a two-man call and it was a domestic call. And they want to see how you're going to use force when you decide to use force, that whole thing. And, you know, the goal is to get officers in the right frame of mind to use force, ideally. However, this particular instance, I was talking to uh, the female uh, actor and my partner was talking to the male actor. And as I'm talking to the female, the male kind of gets away from my partner and kind of walks over to me and just starts yelling at me like, Hey, don't talk to my wife. Don't talk to her. And I knew, you know, the actors are trying to just make things hard and stressful for me. So I'm going to cool, calm and collect it. Hey, relax, man. And the guy, the actor, male actor shoves me. And I was like, all right, Hey, relax, just relax. And I'm like, well, I could escalate this and we could be in a brawl, but that's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. He just shoved me. He's mad that I'm talking to his wife. Sure. And so I, kind of put myself in the position of the actor. I thought that's what they wanted. My partner, on the other hand, immediately grabs the guy, starts delivering like elbows. Now the actors are in these like, you know, padded suits or whatever. So it's not hurting Hmm. them. And so he just starts delivering elbows, yelling, stop resisting. And I literally got in the middle of both my partner and the actor. And I was like, hey, relax. Everyone just relax. Hmm. And out of nowhere, my instructor calls end of exercise and screams at me. It was the most in trouble that I've ever gotten in police academy. Uh, it was like I was in high school and I cussed in class or something. And the, the, he literally just goes, get out, just leave, just get out, go to the gym and run laps. And I was like, what on earth? And he came to me and he said, don't you ever put your hands on another officer. When another officer is in a fight, you get in there and fight with him. And in my head, I, I just wanted to go, that was a bad fight. <laughs> the guy shoved me and I was fine with it. You know, I was like, Hey, relax, we can calm this down. And so it's embedded in your head that if you see another police officer fighting, it's just, it's right. Go kick some tail with him. Yeah. And that was, that was hard for me. Cause that's so counter of how I'm wired. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Kirsch, you've told stories uh, to us offline and in our podcast about how you have de-escalated violent situations, um, you know, and, and it's almost impossible to do that as a police officer in some instances without, without putting your body on the line. Yes. Right. Without actually like you have to be vulnerable to violence mm. in order to de-escalate violence. And what I'm hearing you talk about is a culture where I won't be vulnerable to violence. I'll deliver the violence. And I and and I can justify I'm gonna make my body and mind ready to be mm-hmm. violent with with the least provocation. A hundred percent. that is that is the mindset from the get-go. Now, the justification behind this, which to be fair, we need to talk about, is that there's a measurable statistic of how many police officers die in America every year, right? And we mm-hmm. we can't have this conversation without, you know realizing that one of the memorials with the most names on it in Washington, D.C. is the National Peace Officers Memorial. And a lot of police officers die in the line of duty in America every single year. And that's heartbreaking. Yes. I've been to those funerals. And that is that is one of the hardest things to do 
is to put that black band on your badge and to mourn someone that you still consider a brother, because make no mistake, I do not mean to vilify all police officers, right? I'm vilifying a culture that they exist in, but I don't mean to vilify all police officers. I think this is at its, I'm in love with what policing in America could be. Mm. I think it, I think it could be one of the last noble professions, right? That, that, um, that we can fix this. Um, I'm an idealist and I'm a, I'm a 29 year old dreamer and I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't believe that we could fix it, but you're exactly right. Um, it's, it's really hard to exist, um, within the system. It's, it's, it's really hard to exist within a system that, like you said, they teach you not even, not, not, not just be vulnerable to violence, but not to be vulnerable at all. We're told not to sit down in a living room, uh, because of situational awareness, it could be a setup for an attack or whatever. And so when you go into a home, like police officers taught, you go into every single home expecting you're about to get shot. Um, because that's how it's drilled for 20 weeks in police Academy. You can't connect with people emotionally mm-hmm. and we're, no one calls the police officers on a good day. No one calls the police officers when they're having a great time. People call the police officers when they're in an incredibly vulnerable position themselves, when they're in a yeah. heightened emotional state. And, you know, I remember the first time that someone asked me to sit down in their living room and I said, absolutely, let's chat. And as soon as we walked out, my partner was like, what are you doing? Don't you ever say, you know, they may have bed bugs, but they could have been setting you up. They could tie you to that. Then it was like all of these crazy what ifs. And I was like, yeah, yeah but that, that didn't happen. It was just an old lady who was having trouble with her kid. And so I sat down and talked to, her. you know, like, yeah. I, I can't, you can't talk to someone standing over them. They want you to sit down mm-hmm. and, and feel welcome in their home. So it's our obligation to do that. And so we need to just shift how we, how we speak to our, how we teach our police officers to interact with the public. Hmm. Yeah. Kirsch, as you're talking, so many things are flying through my head. One of them is like, um, you're, you're naming, you're naming a competence or an intelligence about how humans work. <laughs> right. You know? So you're, you're talking about, Hey, when people are, uh, tr- you know, um, freaked out, trapped in their amygdala, fight or flight, in an emer- in a dire situation, they actually need relational connection to calm down. Oh my goodness, yes. Uh, they don't need to be tased sometimes, <laughs> right? That is so true. Like and teasing and- them will calm them down, but what what they need is for somebody to connect in a tune and and see them and relate to them. Absolutely, um, I say all the time, police are are taught how to deal with an angry black man, but they're not taught what made the black man angry. They're not given any sort of um, teaching about the racial history in America or how we got here or mm. why there's a, a taught distrust before we even show up. Uh, police officers are immediately defensive. They're like, well, I didn't hurt you. I didn't do anything to you. Well, no, but you're a white guy in a blue uniform. The last white guy in a blue uniform hurt them. And if, if you're bit by a certain breed of dog, make no mistake, the next time you see that breed of dog, biologically, there's going to be a bell in the back of your head going, remember okay. last time, just be, be a little careful. Dude, yeah. that is so true. I was running with my son yesterday and we ran by a house with a dog in the front yard. An invisible fence was there. And I got attacked by a dog as a freshman in high school uh, at night. Couldn't see it. I still have like scars on my legs. Well, the dog 
dog jumps up and barks at us. <clears throat> He's about 20 feet away. Or she. Mm. I don't really know that. I don't want to assume the dog's gender. That's what I'm saying. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and the dog jumped up and barked. And uh, I immediately had a um, sympathetic nervous system response, like flooded with cortisol and whatever. And I checked in with my 11 year old and I was like, that dog scared me to death. And he's like, oh, he's like, I'm not scared. And I was Mm. like, did you see the dog before it barked? He's like, no. But I, when it barked, I looked over and saw a dog and (laughs) you know, like that's how, that's how like bodies are supposed to work. Right. But when you've been traumatized by something, come on, you, your body stores that memory Mm -hmm. and, I don't get to choose if my fight or flight turns on when that dog barks. It just yeah. happens. And my body's yeah. trying to protect me. And and one of the things I heard you just say, and I want to highlight it for everybody, is that there is like generational, centuries long traumatizing. Yeah. Right? The police yeah. aren't a neutral force for many people because they were never, they, were, they weren't uh, intended or started to serve and protect certain groups of people. They were intended and started to oppress certain groups of people. And and those and so there's this I think there's like the the dog barking cortisol response mm-hmm. that I hear you saying some cops just don't get. Yeah. They don't get and they're not taught it. And they're not taught if they're not taught it, they're not taught how to combat it. Right. And so they don't understand that it's it's it was the nineteen sixties, right? That's not that long ago that mm-hmm. police officers were sicking dogs and fire hoses on people. And so that's basically the grandparents' generation, right? Mm -hmm. And we may buck the, what our parents say uh, Mm -hmm. and, and rebel against it. But we take the words of our grandparents to be gospel. All of us do, you know, like we Mm -hmm. listen to the wisdom of our grandparents and the young men in America right now, the young men of color in America, they grew up with grandparents that had the distinct ability to lift up a pant leg and show them scars from a literal dog and say, mm-hmm. let me tell you what the police did to me. Mm-hmm. Please be safe when you get yeah. pulled over. Yeah. This is what, this is what they did to me. Yeah. And if your grandparent looks you in the eye, that's a lesson from your grandparents, mm-hmm. you know, and that is embedded with all the other lessons we get from our grandparents, like wash behind your ears, save early for college, all of those other <laughs> lessons that we get from our grandparents. Mm-hmm. That's that's embedded in in, yeah. in there, and rightfully so. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm saying it comes from true experiences, yeah. yeah. And it upsets me that police officers aren't taught that they're not yeah. they're not taught that they can be representative of healing by just listening. And so, uh, you know, yeah. one of the craziest stories that I've I have ever heard that I kind of e- equate to this was. Um, it was a high school principal. And when he took over nine months prior, a young man had drowned in the pool at that high school. And then he found out that no one had gone and visited that mom of the young man who died. And so he had nothing to do with it. This happened nine months before he took Mm -hmm. over as, as principal. But what he did is he asked for that mom's uh, name and address. And he went to her house and he just listened. And she thanked him at the end and she just cried right in his arms because she felt like the school system hadn't done anything, Mm. hadn't investigated her son's death, hadn't looked into it at all, hadn't, Mm. you know, let it happen. There was gross negligence involved. He didn't fix it. He didn't bring her son back. Uh, He didn't take that experience away. 
But what he did do was he was representative of the hurt that she experienced. And if mm. police officers realize that when they interact with someone who they can tell has an anger and distrust, that they can sit down, figure out what happened, be the first police officer to listen to that story, because make no mistake, every human on this planet just wants to be heard. They, we all just want to be heard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they can listen. They can't. They, they can avoid making those excuses and justifying the actions of that police officer and then replace it with a positive experience. Because Mm -hmm. in our instant gratification culture right now, we're looking for, well, how do we fix racism in America? Or how do we (laughs) fix the relationship between the black community and law enforcement? But we didn't get here overnight and it's not going to be solved overnight. Um, that's, That's something we need to remember. I can't tell you how many times I went into a domestic and the husband and wife were fighting and I, I would say, I can't fix in 15 minutes what it took you guys 30 years to mess up, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not being mean. It's just adjusting the frame of mind. And that's yeah. what, I, that's what yeah. I want us to do is, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some work to get mm-hmm. out of the mess that we're in. Yeah. Uh, but we've got to commit ourselves to it. Yeah. Um, and we've got to, like you were saying, Matt, make ourselves real vulnerable. Uh, because in many ways, not just police officers, but in many ways, white evangelicals, the blood mm. on our hands. Mm. Well, the, the blood of silence is on our hands. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you, so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission, and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. I think you're you're pointing out something that's important to, to I, I think highlight here, Kirsch, because um, in some ways you're you're talking very similar. You're, you're there's a very similar dynamic going on. So the police are taught you could like it's dangerous out there, right? Mm-hmm. Be on your guard. This might be a setup. You could get killed, right? And so they enter into these situations with fear. Um, young black men are taught the same kinds of thing, right? Um, be careful. You know, put your hands on the dash. Don't make any sudden movements, be very polite, you know, that kind of thing. And so there's this fear that's instilled into both parties, but the difference in response has to come from the party with more power. Mm. Right. hundred percent. So, so the, the, like, obviously it is traumatizing and it's terrible. Like you said, you know, I could feel the emotion in that of like attending a funeral of a police officer. It's, that's awful. You know what I mean? Like nobody's saying that's not awful, Yeah. but because of the historic and present power that the police officer has over the black person, they're the ones, you know what I mean? Like I think the Christian way of responding is to say, if I have power, I, I empty myself on behalf of the weak. Mm. I, you know, I pour myself mm. out on behalf of those uh, who don't have as much power as me. And so I think that goes, f- you know, for police officers, as you're saying, but also, as you just said, white evangelicals as well, that we have historically held power in America. And so it's less of a, um, 
I think sometimes I've heard this kind of thing uh, related to, I had a missionary friend who was talking about, um, you know, he spent some time in uh, an African country and sort of said like, yeah, we've seen tribal tensions, you know, erupt in Africa as well. People get killed, you know, and I, I have a friend who has, has a friend in Kenya, I think that just was killed for tribal rivalries. Yeah. But Nigeria. This is not Nigeria. In, yeah. yeah. And so this is, but this is not the same thing at all. This is not two equal forces who are uh, f- afraid of each other. This is one that has power and one that doesn't. One that makes it power and a lot of weapons and a lot of funding. Right. Um, right. And absolutely. immunity from accountability, yep. you know, the, the qualified immunity stuff like, yeah. So anyway, I just think that's an important thing to, to remember in this. I think people too easily draw conclusions to say like, oh, this is about like white people and black people not getting along. Nah, not really. You know what I mean? It's it's about uh, people with power lording it over those without, and like that's a very different kind of problem. Yeah, and I I think what you you touched on is a I'll just I'll call it an excuse um, mm-hmm. to not enter into a place of reconciliation yes. uh, to vilify the other side and yes. point out all of the problems in the other side. Mm-hmm. True love can never come from an ultimatum right? True love can never, ever, ever come out of an ultimatum. And what I mean by that is we're hearing that rhetoric come back up where it's, yeah, I've had people ask me, well, what about the black on black crime? And nothing irks me more uh, than that because it's a white person who says it. Yeah. And you don't really care about black on black crime first (laughs) off, right? You're only bringing it up within the context of a conversation that you need to repent or you need to yes. examine your heart. You need to self audit for those, mm-hmm. for those blind spots. So if, if that, if that worry in you comes up only within the context of that conversation, I would question the validity of that worry. However, you're also a white person and you have no piece of the puzzle of black on black crime. So you can't fix it. So, yeah. you know, you can't ever, you, and what I hear them say a lot, you know, is, well, you know, I'll reach out whenever they take care of all their own problems and the fatherlessness and all of that. Well, what you're doing is you're putting an ultimatum on love and reconciliation. And I don't ever remember seeing Jesus do that. Maybe he did. I know I'm on a podcast with pastors, but uh, I don't I don't remember that. Um, I don't remember him saying, I'll love you if, uh, you know, it was. No matter you're what, you're on pretty solid ground there theologically. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate the validation, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so we'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want people to understand that if that's really a worry of yours, right? If if mm-hmm. the fact that there is a statistical probability that a young man won't reach his 25th birthday just based on the color of his skin, which is heartbreaking, mm-hmm. if that's really if that really pains your heart then do something. Go go uh, organize or volunteer at the Urban League or the NAACP takes white members, right? So go mm-hmm. do those things, right? Mobilize yourself. Mm-hmm. But don't use that as an ultimatum for you to take your step in yeah. healing and reconciliation. Right. And, and be praying that the Lord will raise up black leaders to confront those issues within their own communities, because Lord knows there are plenty in the white community, but man, nothing, nothing bothers me more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to know what about white on white crime, Kirsch? Oh, come on. <laughs> uh, no, uh, Kirsch, you're talking about, you <laughs> Matt, are, that's just called crime. 
That's oh, is that what we do? We just <laughs> yeah, call that, that crime? We, we just call it crime. And yeah. it's, it, it's done by individuals. It's so. kind of like American history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. um, anyway. It's, anyway. Anyway. We're talking uh, about the system there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I have like six more questions to ask you in three minutes. Um, you're talking about how you operate out of, out of a logic of love yeah. and redemption in the midst of a system that runs on like something different. So fear. yeah, fear, intimidation, maybe retribution, mm-hmm. maybe like self-protection, self-preservation. Uh, I've heard you name kind of these different dynamics, violence, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, and the, you know, the code, you know, like br- we never, like the worst crime is to tell the bad truth it's to be a rat yeah. is to be a narc, you know? So and true. so, yeah. And so, uh, you're operating in a system that functions with a different logic this is what I, I've, I've said this, and then I always think about you when I say this, so I want to get your response. I, I'm not really interested in talking about bad cops and good cops, because I, I know on my worst day, I'm a bad cop. Mm. Like, you put me stressed out in a bad situation, and I can justify almost anything. Yeah. You know what I've I'm saying? A, I've been a bad dad plenty of days. Yeah. You know, intimidate my kids. I'm you not, know, yeah. Whatever. I'm not saying that I would, like, lynch a black man in the street. Let me just be clear about that. I, I don't... I mean, my heart I don't is. Think with, I'm capable of that. I don't think I'm yeah. capable. Although I, you know, theolog- there's some theological people that are like, ah, technically, you are capable. Uh, <laughs> Total depravity. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm capable. I just can't ever see that that happening. Yeah, yeah. But I think if you put a, you put anybody into a rotten system and they become rotten, like because of how we are as humans. So how, mm. Kirsch, how do you maintain and preserve your values? And your commitments to love, in the midst of a system that pressures you, uh, consciously and and unconsciously, not to. So I think the first part is knowing that um, based on what I've been taught, it puts me more at risk in many many ways. Right? That if let's say that is true, that I could get attacked or, uh, you know, bombarded sitting on a couch talking to someone. Mm-hmm. I, I would almost consider myself a martyr for my calling, uh, because that's what I was called to do. That's mm. what that that those are my natural talents, gifts, skills, and abilities is to mm. sit and listen. Right. That's why the Lord gave me this crazy story with a communications degree, um, and I took those interpersonal communication classes so I could deploy them now. And mm. so that's 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 the unique story of Kirsch. And so I just have to know that I'm going to be more vulnerable and I have to release myself from that. And I have to release myself from that fear and worry. That doesn't mean I don't maintain that situational awareness to a degree, but um, I need to understand that harm may befall me at a higher rate than someone who goes to work and is, you know, a hard charging, always thinking everyone's the enemy and going to attack them. Right. Um, They're always on the defense. And so, I need to but know you've that. made that calculus. You you've made that calculus, and you have decided that it is worth it a to live in love and to be faithful to what you feel called to do is more important than an extra modicum of safety for your for your body. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah, and and my goal now is um, is to multiply it. Um, mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough there at the when I first started the neighborhood that I worked in Fort Wayne. No one really wanted to work it. 
um, very multicultural. Um, it was really just a smattering. I wouldn't even say it was uh, a black community. I mean, it was a smattering, a true smattering. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was a blast to work in because almost every day I encountered someone that didn't speak the same language as me and I had to figure out how mm -hmm. to communicate with them and figure out what their experiences are. I love it, right? That's mm -hmm. um, if, you haven't, if you haven't picked up now, uh, by now, I love that kind of stuff. And so yeah. um, by the end of my four and a half years in Fort Wayne, there were officers bidding to come work in that neighborhood to come work with me. And, mm -hmm. that, and I know that, and I'm not, that's not to puff my chest out or anything, but that is, you know, that was, that was their words. I mean, that's what they said. I, I was getting the messages like, Hey man, I'm hearing great things about what you're doing down, down there in the district. Um, I'm next bid that comes out. I'm going to, I'm going to bid down there and come work with you. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Right. And then even guys who are getting on different rotations. So it'd be like, I can't get one on your rotation, but you know, I'll be able to just work with you two days and that'll be awesome. And I'm like, mm. that's great. I don't even remember meeting you, man. It's a department mm -hmm. of 480, but yeah, that's, that's awesome. And so now that I'm that, that I'm a chief, it's really hard sometimes to manage guys who have been policing longer than I've been alive. I've got a guy who's been oh, yeah. a police officer for 32 years. So as, as at 29, I have to figure out how to do this and mm. um, I have to figure out how to manage him just on a professional level. But I also have to figure out how can I operate in a way that he sees my method of policing, my methodology of policing and want to do that and see the fruits of it. And so as a police chief, I don't have to go to calls, right? I, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm the top dog. I don't have to go to runs. I don't have to stop cars, but I want to be intentional about doing that. So officers can see that um, and can see it modeled rather than just having me tell it. So Kirsch, I have a question. You, you mentioned to us offline that you're the youngest police chief in America. Active, right. There have been younger, but active. Yeah. You're the youngest active police chief in America. Um, you're, you're a guy who actively says on social media and in your precincts, black lives matter. Yes. Um, you actively deconstruct blue lives matter. Yes. Uh, and push back against that. Um, you're actively seeking to make peace and reconciliation rather than use violence. Yes. And you've told us before about the shade or the, um, getting blackballed, getting blackballed. How, how do you explain like your presence in a system that is pushing back against the system, maybe exposing some things in the system that are untrue uh, on one hand, but also you being um, people recognizing you personally wanting to work with you and becoming a police chief. How do you understand that dichotomy? I don't know that I have an answer for that. I'm still figuring <laughs> it out. Um, I, I say, and it sounds silly, but I say all the time, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I really, and it's true. And, and what's, what's frustrating is what I'm doing is exceptional because there aren't, at least that I've found, many police officers that are doing this. But I want mm. to live in a world where I'm not exceptional. I want to live in a world where all police officers check all of those boxes that you just said. Yeah. I want to live in a world um, where I'm not blackballed for speaking up when I see excessive force. Um, and I have to fight that rep because that reputation preceded me here. 
uh, which mm. was fun. Uh, it was a it was a county away, and I had officers mm. who were uh, you know coming into my office, going, you know, kind of stand off. All right, chief, I heard we need to watch our back around you. What's all this about? Okay, well, let me tell you a couple of stories, and you can exp- you you know, I, I, you can understand why I spoke up because I saw some crazy excessive force, and I went to internal affairs about it. And I would like to think that you would do the same thing. Wait, let me adjust. I'm the chief of police. I would expect that you would do the same mm. thing, or you can find a job elsewhere. And now that I have sort of that authority to do that and to set that precedent up, for me and my department, we won't stand for that. For me and my department, we're not going to use force on peaceful protesters. For me and my department, we're not even going to own tear gas. Uh, you know, and so I get to set the president, but to answer that crazy question, Matt, I really don't know how I, how I understand it all and how I respond. It's really situational. It's, it's really, um, kind of figuring it out as I go. Cause there's no book. There's no, yeah. um, I call my dad a lot. My dad is a, is a chief in, in Franklin, Indiana. And man, he's got some crazy, awesome stories. So he, he, he polices in a similar way that I do. And the first night of protest in his town, um, he went down by himself in uniform. And then I think later was joined by his number two and just listened to every pro just walked the protest line and just listened and hugged and loved on people. And now he has gotten this crazy influx of donations and people wanting to buy. So he's, um, instead of having, Canine dogs as we know it, he's deploying a team of therapy dogs for police officers to have mm. Uh, mm. for them, for both the police officers who deal with mm. the trauma that police officers see, but yeah. also to take into situations. And so this mm. sort of new idea of policing, really the only guy I have to, to rely on whenever I feel like I'm crazy is to mm. call my dad and just go, tell me I'm not crazy. Tell me this is going to work out. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, what I hear is important there, and this is what we train pastors to do. Um, you know, there's a lot of sick church culture, a lot mm-hmm. of people who have been abused or hurt in church cultures, right? Because you have a hierarchy, you've got power, you've got secrecy, you get you got some of the same stuff going on in police. You know, protect the brand, protect the brotherhood. Um, pr- we 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 can't hurt the church if the past. You know, all this stuff. Uh, and and what I, what strikes me is we train pastors to do what you're doing in the police. Uh, sphere mm. to to operate in and center themselves in love and allow that logic to change what makes sense. How you know what I mean? Yeah. What coheres and what's rational? And I the other thing that uh, is related to that, um, Matt. I think a lot of times when pastors first start to realize the shift they're going to need to make, the fears that come up are: I'm going to get fired. The church isn't going to want to go with me. You know, I'm not sure what the outcome of this way of uh, acting is going to is going to be, and that like abandoning the outcome is part of the process. Just saying, yeah, you might get fired. We know we never make any promises. Like sometimes <laughs> the best thing that happens to pastors after they come through our training is they get fired for doing the right thing. Yeah, and um, I've so never signed up, a- <laughs> up for Gravity Leadership. Gravity Leadership. But but I've never had a pastor who was sort of oh, go, went through the worst thing. That I, they've never regretted it. They've been like, yeah, that was it was terrible. Uh, my experience was awful, 
but you know the the culture couldn't handle what I wanted to what I wanted to bring. And I hear some of the same thing with you, Kirsch, of just saying like I'm just trying to do the right thing in every situation that I can, and we'll see where that leads me. You know what I mean? Like Absolutely. so far, it's led you to, like you're a chief of police, but there's What's no that? guarantee. I mean, you you might have been you know relegated to some you know terrible you know cop duty for the rest of your career. Like that could have been the result as well. And then you just you know you live out your days that way. But I, I hear you sort of saying like I'm I don't have this grand design of here's how I'm going to reform it all. I'm just trying to do the right thing in the context I'm in, and see where the chips fall. Yeah, and and I think the little the only difference that I would see right is a pastor who has that call to be a pastor and then goes through your training and then shifts and does something different and then is fired for it, right? Um, he had to be taught that. Where for me, mm. my job as a police officer is literally predicated on my call to racial reconciliation. I wouldn't be a police officer if it wasn't for my pursuit of racial reconciliation. So it's mm. easier for me to white knuckle the cause uh, because that's the only reason I'm a police officer. I'm certainly right. not a police officer because it's fun or it pays well, <laughs> you know? Uh, that's yeah. a, although I love my, I mean, I, I genuinely believe I have the best job in the world and I say it all yeah. the time. I can't believe yeah. they pay me to do it. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I'm, I don't do this job because it's safe um, and all yeah. the other things. Yeah. I, I literally became a police officer for this cause. So I knew going in that you're exactly right. Whether I am given an office in a broom closet and mm -hmm. the only person I can interact with is the one person that I pass in the lobby each day. Yeah, That's got to be it, right? I've got to yeah. be ready to deal with whatever ramifications come out of this. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a yeah. really good perspective. But, but again, you're in, you've made the calculus that being faithful to this call is more important than your career advancement, than your personal safety. Absolutely. Like you've, you've made that calculus and made that decision. Um, and don't regret it. Not at all. Not at all. Um, I, I mean, as you can see, uh, when I was offered this position, I was like, do you sure you get, you sure you got the right guy? You know, uh, <laughs> this is, this is crazy. And, and yeah. it's, it's, um, man, it's the Lord's favor if I've ever seen it. And it's, it's mm. such a testament that if we, if we do the right thing, um, and we follow that call, things will work out. And it may, I, I never expected, I never necessarily wanted we'll just say that i never really wanted to be a mm. chief right um i thought i wanted to be a road guy for 20 years get my pension and then move on to something else whether it be teach or something like that i mean i got my yeah. master's and so um i thought maybe i would teach at 45 uh 46 once i once i got my once i got my pension but you know mm -hmm. this is it this is the opportunity that was presented to me based on like you said the individual actions that I take each day. So mm. we'll seize it. Yeah. Kirsch, when you hear defund the police, do you get excited or scared? Um, I kind of get excited. So, and, and <laughs> here's the thing, police officers, if they, if they really think about it, they'll get excited too. And there may be one police officer who's listening, but there are police officers, most police officers, when we go to domestics that aren't violent, you know, just these, this is a ridiculous couple that's been fighting their whole life. And you're like, I can't fix this. I'm not a marriage counselor. Uh, <laughs> or when, yeah. when you go to the parent's house uh, because their kid won't go to school in the morning and you're frustrated because you're like, I signed up to be a cop. I signed up to do cop stuff. 
not to parent this lady's kids, right? And all police officers have said this. Yeah. Defund the police is the unique opportunity for police officers to get out of those jobs, right? Because if you look yeah. at what defund the police really is, and we need to talk about this because yeah. defund the police isn't we're taking Anarchy. all of the money and we're disbanding the police. Now, there is a movement to abolish police. That's something totally different, right? But defund the police means take some of the funds that were allocated for local municipal law enforcement officers and put it into mental health professionals, family counselors, yes, uh, addiction therapists, right? I mean, I can't right. t- like it's, who knows what the statistic is on how many things that we go to that's a result of alcohol or drug abuse. And yes. I'm not uh, an alcohol and drug counselor. I'm not a, an, an addiction counselor. No, mm-hmm. no police officer is unless they have a crazy story where God called them out of uh, addiction therapy into policing. But um, the thing is, this is this is creating a better opportunity for police officers to do police stuff is really mm-hmm. what it is, right? Because yeah. we all know that there are real criminals in in society, right? I mean, I I don't remember. I, I did not expect Calvin to come up in this conversation, but you said total depravity, right? And so we, <laughs> I opened the door. You just walked through it. That's right. And so we know that there's criminals. We know that there are people who are very dangerous people and that, that police are the only people who do need to respond to them, right? Mm-hmm. They're, that mm-hmm. Sending someone unarmed into a situation is, you know, almost a guaranteed death. And so we know that there's a need for some form of policing, but with the deinstitutionalization of mental health services, one of the highest demographics that people uh, that pe- uh, people who die at the hands of law enforcement are mental health patients. Yes, yes. yes. All mental health calls now go to an armed police officer. Yes. But at least in Indiana, mental health training for law enforcement officers is optional. Hmm. Optional. So that yeah. means. You have a police officer who doesn't know a single thing uh, about paranoid schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or how it's going to respond when there's a psychoactive narcotic on board. As you can tell, I've been through the training. Yes. Uh, and but you have a police officer who doesn't know those things and doesn't know about uh, sensory overload in someone who has Asperger's or is on the spectrum. They, yes. they don't know about that. And they're only yeah. going to apply more sensory overload and then further escalate that situation. And the next thing you know, you're in a deadly force encounter and that no longer becomes a mental health issue, but it becomes a police issue that's subject to the Supreme court law of the use of force. And that police officer is not justified to kill a mental health patient. When, if we had a mental health therapist there from the get go, when someone called nine one one, it didn't just dispatch police, fire, EMS, but it dispatched police, fire, EMS, family counseling, addiction therapist. Call me crazy but I think that's probably okay. And we need to un- understand that it's a straw man to say defund the police means there are no police and it's just anarchy in the streets and your house is yeah. going to get broke. That's fear. Yeah. That is a fear tactic used uh, mm-hmm. by police unions, particularly the fraternal order of police to uh, eliminate that rhetoric of defund the police and what it, and what it really means. And so um, I'll pr- I'm sure I'll probably get a nasty gram now for mentioning the fraternal order of police. Well, you brought up something I wanted to bring up. So I brought up Calvin and you walked through that door. I'm going to walk through your uh, union door. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> I've heard uh, from other police officers and from people who have studied this more than me that the real problem are police unions. Um, what 
I, I don't know if you can narr- if you can really zero in on one thing that's the real problem. But in your opinion, uh, how do is that is that true? Is it a problem? And and what do we do about it? Yeah. So this is um, the last time that I spoke about unions. I really I I mean I really I got some nasty nasty emails, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's because we're treading on some serious ground here that um, if exposed, people would say, this is not okay. You know, and one of those things is there are very few, at least in Indiana, there are very few local police unions. Fort Wayne has one. They have the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, um, and you're encouraged to join it. Uh, but Indiana is a right to work state, so you don't have to be one, but uh, everyone is a member just because, once again, the culture. Yeah. Now, the yes. biggest one, the national one, is the Fraternal Order, Fraternal Order of Police, the FOP. There are, it's, I mean, it's global, right? I mean, there are chapters and houses all over the United States. And in all police academies, at least that I'm aware of, there has to be, or they've organized it somehow, that every representative of police command leaves the room and a FOP chapter president comes into the room, just talks to the recruits and says, this is the fraternal fraternal order of police. This is why you need to be a member. And you also need to pay extra for what's called the legal defense fund. This means that the fraternal order of police will pay your legal defense in any litigation, criminal or civil. And it's Mm. basically one of the largest weapons that you could have um, in the American criminal justice system, because as Brian Stevenson says, this criminal justice system that we interact with now treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. And so if you have as a police officer, the security blanket of endless amounts of legal defense, right. And, and I would have to look into it, whether, whether Derek Chauvin is, is going to be funded, if his defense is going to be funded by the FOP and the legal defense fund. I don't know that. I'm not saying that, but it's very yes. possible. It is very, very mm. possible uh, that if he paid into the legal defense fund, that it's a police union that's defending him for the murder of George Floyd. And then when the family sues him civilly, which is their right in America, the FOP will again be fighting the family. And so mm. that is just the incredible power of the FOP uh, in the United States. They are in the ear of every single police officer and every single police recruit. And it's basically presented as this security blanket that you can't afford not to have. You have to give us this extra $110 a year. Otherwise you could go to jail for the rest of your life. But if you pay us that extra 110, we got your back. And as you know, the, the amount of police officers who go to jail uh, for killing someone is teeny tiny, minuscule, yep. negligible. Oh man! I hope that answered <sighs> your your union question. It, I mean, that's it like did, that, man. That's deep. That gets deep. It, it did. I I'm just I'm listening to you, Kirsch, and I. So many of my friends. Um, I posted a picture uh, of of you. Uh, you you put something on Facebook a couple weeks back, and it was a picture of a cop hugging um, a white cop hugging a black person. And I think it had the prayer of St. Francis underneath of it or something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, man, I got blistered for it. I'm sorry. Uh, well, you were there. I mean, you were, you showed up in the comments. Oh, okay. 
yeah, you were there too. Blur at this point. I, I know, dude. I know. I, I'm just saying, I think the animosity and the mistrust and the anger at the police is at an all-time high, at least in my world and my sphere. And um, I, I, I want us to begin to gain an imagination for something other than um, F the police, it's all bad, or how dare you question uh, law and order. And um, if, you, if you would just obey police officers' commands, you wouldn't get hurt, which is the biggest load of crap ever, right? Yeah, Brianna so, was sleeping, so... I know, <laughs> I know, and those cops are still on duty. That's right. Dude, Ah. I, I feel like a dog just barked in the front yard. I'm all triggered. Um, <laughs> I really am. I'm so ticked off about it. Kirsch, there has to be, um, I, I think you just talked about the criminal justice system. It's a criminal injustice yeah. system. Mm. And I think we have to begin to reimagine and reclaim what uh, justice looks like. Mm. Yeah. Going from retribution to restoration, going from violence to peacemaking, going from... Uh, vindictive uh revenge to um a reconciliation right and so mm. i'm just so grateful that you yeah. gave us this time today and i'm yeah. so grateful for the work you're doing um and i i wonder man have you thought have you thought at all about ways to scale what you're doing yeah i have and i don't know um it's hard i, I never really know what the best way to do that and i think we touched on this at the end of the last mm time I was with you is I'm, I'm always very careful um, because I, for a long time, I believed this lie that the face of racial reconciliation in America shouldn't be a white police officer. But that was kind of flipped on my head when a person of color came to me and said, no, it has to be a white police officer. And so mm -hmm. I'm taking more opportunities. Uh, when someone asks me to speak, I'll speak. When someone um, you know, I was on a call with a nonprofit last night um, that deals with domestic violence, and they were just asking me, how do we, how do we incorporate what you do or, or your teachings into healing domestic violence victims um, and reaching out to women of color? And it's another one of those in many ways I feel unqualified, but, um, you know, I have thought about scaling it. I have the, you know, a blog and, um, I, I just, I want to get, I don't ever want to fall into the trap of like self-promotion um, or I know, dude. like that. Yeah. So I get that. Well, I wonder, like, I don't know how I'm so ignorant and this is part of my white privilege. I'm so ignorant about how the legislative um, hierarchy works and how you, wh what, what would I run for? What position would I want to have in order to make systemic changes? Is it the uh, commissioner? Right? Is there some county or city role? But I'm wondering, like, do do you need to continue to seek greater influence over an area to basically like test pilot what like what you're doing? I hear what you're saying, reading between the lines, and I've I've always considered that, um, and I I think at at some point running for something is um, certainly in my future. Um, for me, the two that I see that you could make the most impact are a state representative, uh, because that's going to handle all of your state statutes, you know, local ordinances, 
it really is what it is. But if we started uh, from a state level, like some states are doing, um, creating legislation that would ban a no knock warrant, Brianna would still be with us, you know? And mm -hmm. so a state representative, a legislative state legislator um, would definitely be someone that could enact change from a systemic level from, from the mm -hmm. top down, which is what needs to happen. And so, um, mm -hmm. you know, for me, that's, that's, that's a goal in the future. If we're just going to call a spade a spade, I mean, that, that is definitely a goal to be, um, to be a state representative at, at, at some point. And then, um, I, you know, I, I would never, I would never think that I'm, I'm qualified to do it, but the other one would be, um, your, your congressman reaching out to your congressman. Um, so if you're in that Northeast Indiana corridor, it's Jim Banks and, and reaching out to representative banks and, um, letting him know this is the legislation that we want to see, uh, that could fix this problem. But, uh, for those of you who do want to get involved in politics, that those are the two that I think could could make the most change is is a state representative or or a congressman. Yeah, I I hear this all the time when I talk about nonviolence. I hear, um, and I'm sure you hear the same thing, Kirsch. Well, what about the person who breaks into your house and is going to rape your wife at gunpoint? Um, and I'm like, well, how often does that happen? First of all, right. you know, and two, I don't know how I'd respond. Um, but in those conversations, what strikes me is that people lack an imagination for how to respond in any way other than violence. That's true. And and I think we need models and examples and stories of so that our bodies and our imaginations are ready. We know the things that make for peace. Mm. And I, I just want to commend what you're doing, man. And I... I want to just maybe speak this word to you that it isn't self-promotion to declare the goodness of God that you're seeing. Mm. It's not self-promotion to give uh, to give people an imagination for something other or something else. Yep. Um, and I just want to say we need to hear stories, uh, make a lot of mistakes, mm. get better. Mm -hmm. tell the story and like let's let's like when our kids are our age let's have let's have the police force look different mm. that'd be awesome wouldn't that be awesome that would be mm. so awesome yes <sighs> yep amen to that kirsch you are um i think you've already shown that you're really not interested in self-promotion you know, you've you've already acted in ways that could have been uh, deeply harmful to your career <laughs> and you know what i mean like yeah and so i i don't i wouldn't see any anything about getting the word out about what you're uh wanting to do about um proclaiming a, a new imagination for folks uh, i don't see anything about that as, as self-promotion so love it I need that validation yeah. yes so don't lose heart keep it up and we need more we need more um police chiefs like you Absolutely. um kirsch you mentioned your blog earlier uh, where can people track with stories, what you're doing, um, what you're experiencing? Yeah. So, um, I think I said it last time. I'm the only Kirsch Cochran on Facebook. So, um, <laughs> feel free to reach out, send me that message. If something, uh, that I said, you're like, man, I don't understand this or, or how can I help or something like that. Or if you're upset that I called out the fraternal order of police, uh, shoot me that message and we'll have that conversation. Um, <laughs> brave, but, uh, very brave of you. It is. And so uh, the blog is, is racialjustice.com uh, with a dash. So racial-justice.com. 
And um, I share a lot of stories on there. I respond to um, current events that are happening. And so um, that's, that's, that also has a, 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 like a, like an inquiry page. If you want me to come speak at your church or event or whatever it is, and we can, we can sit down and have that conversation um, on the logistics. So that's, those are probably the best two ways to get a hold of me um, or to reach out to me. If, like I said, I'm available and I, and I'm, I'm so available to anyone who has a group and they say, we need to figure out how to have this conversation. Um, black, white, and different, you know, I, I want to sit down, I want to share um, mm -hmm. how we can fix this and, and get us out of this mindset that this is a, a political discussion because it is not a political issue, it is a spiritual issue. The kingdom of God is multiracial, the kingdom of God is multicultural, and um, we need to be moving in that direction. Awesome. Amen. Thank you, Kirsch. Thanks for having yeah, thanks me. Thanks for spending time with us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.